What does it feel like to tell your story to a journalist and sit and wait as that article or podcast drops? Would you be nervous or excited? What advice would you hear from someone who has gone on the record and wants to help someone as they weigh whether or not to do it themselves? Today, I'm joined for part two of a conversation with two friends who answer these questions as we pull back the curtain to show you what it's like to go on the record for a journalist. Keep listening. This is going to be a great episode. I'm Amy Fritz, and you're listening to the Untangled Faith Podcast, a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith while untangling it from all that is not good or true, this is the place for you. This is the second part of a conversation I had with Lori Harding and Lori Adams-Brown about their experiences with sharing their stories on the record with a journalist. You can find part one on episode 69. Both of these women shared their stories with journalist Julie Royce. Lori Adams-Brown's account intersected with the leadership of Andy Wood, who has just recently taken a position at Saddleback Church as the successor to Rick Warren. Lori Harding's experience was with leaders at Coral Ridge Presbyterian in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and Grace Community Church in Boca Raton, Florida. I also wanted to note that when Lori Harding and I were recording, I failed to notice that I didn't have great audio quality, so her audio is a little more distorted and she sounds farther away. I should have caught that right away, but I didn't. To start out this episode, we'll drop into this conversation right as I'm asking Lori Adams-Brown what it was like to wait for the article with their story to drop and what it was like when the article went live. Here we go. And like, what was that feeling like? And and the like aftershocks of it, like, okay, it's out. My husband and I processed it a little bit differently, um, but for the most part, the same. Um, It was a huge relief to have gotten it out there even before it was published. Um, Mm -hmm. There was this moment when we got the um, news that Andy was going to Saddleback. And then it kind of gave us a guilty feeling because it's like, oh, no. If we had spoken about this more publicly sooner, would Saddleback have hired him? And now he's going to have all these people that he could potentially abuse because I know people with addictions of various kinds, people that I really care Mm -hmm. about. My husband has a marriage and family therapy degree and his internship was on a substance abuse center. So we've been around, you know, all kinds of addictions and walking through that with people. It's hard. If Mm -hmm. I would never give somebody that I care about who's an alcoholic a beer, I would just not do that. I would never give a drug addict drugs. And Andy Wood is addicted to power. And somebody just gave him so much power. And I care about him as a brother, even though he has hurt me very badly and blown up my life Mm -hmm. in some ways, although nobody really has that much control. But yeah, he he did a lot of stuff that I've had to forgive him about long ago and over and over in some ways. But and hurt people I care about outside my family that I've been met Mm -hmm. since. But yeah, I think in the process of all of that, there was a relief because there was a part of us all along like, should we go more public? Should we say this more publicly? And then when it came out that he got to, you know, be at Saddleback, there was a level of guilt in us, like maybe we should have spoken out sooner. And mm-hmm. hindsight's twenty twenty. If I had a time machine, would I go back and do it differently? I don't really know. But I just know that 
at the time when I had the information and it felt like the right time to say it and we were ready and had done enough healing and had, were a little more stable, we did. And yeah, uh, and we still are. And um, you can't do it all the time, but we do, you know, regularly speak out about it and it's still unresolved. And so um, it felt like both a relief that we had it out there and then also kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop, so to speak. Like, how is yeah. it going to be received? Mm-hmm. Like, we were prepared to be just reamed. We were prepared to be crucified, vilified, slandered, trashed, all of it. And that's the price we felt like maybe we had to pay to do mm-hmm. the right thing and hopefully wake some people up and save, you know, help some captives be set free. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that was kind of how it felt uh, waiting for it to come out. It was a mixed bag. <laughs> Relief and And then it came out. Then it came out. Did you hear from people then? I imagine you did. Oh, my gosh. That was one of my surprises was I – How many notifications did you get on your phone that day? Oh, I don't even – yeah. I think we had to just take (laughs) – I think there were multiple times where we just turned things off and just had to ignore things. Yeah. You have to. This was not our first rodeo. With being in situations like that, we just had never been whistleblowing Mm -hmm. in the news. I would say that one of my biggest surprises and one of those things I sort of ponder in my heart with gratitude toward God and a grace I didn't expect was 99% of the reaction was positive and thanking us. Mm. And I just, we had not expect, we had thought it would be reverse, like 1% positive, mm-hmm. 99%. You are the worst human beings on the planet. You're, you'll never get yeah. hired again. You'll never bounce back from this. This is going to basically ruin your reputation and your grandkids for the rest of your lives. Like that's what we were expecting. But 99% yeah. of it was, oh my gosh, thank you so much for finally saying what we've known for a long time. Or Thank you so much. I am in a different situation with a friend of Andy Woods at a mega church and they follow the same playbook and I, me too, you know? Um, But I think the biggest, I knew there were more stories than what I personally knew in my like year and a half of working at the church. And I knew enough just in my year and a half. And what I did not expect was people reaching out to me from their life previously and saying, this has been going on for a Mm -hmm. long time. Um, his, I, there were three stories that came to me from his church in Breakthrough, Texas. There were many stories from Echo Church over the years, people who had moved to you know, Dallas, Texas, or Washington, D.C., or Washington State, or Oregon, or um, had gone on to work at other companies, was like, I'm never going to work in ministry again. Um, many of them who had gone to therapy for years and thought it was just them because they were so gaslit and told, you're unhealthy, you're greedy. You're mm-hmm. trying to take a good man down. It was finally for some people, it's like seven years ago, I moved away and I've told no one. And um, wow. people broke their NDAs with me. And so I don't share their names. Um, but mm-hmm. the pattern is exactly the same. And uh, I think that that was a way God gave both of us just this incredible gift to be honored with the stories of survivors Mm -hmm. and this very sacred space. And to, after all this time, just to say, you're not crazy. This is real. Me too. And there's so many of us. And 
in a situation where the culture says, if you gossip, you'll get fired, years later, people carry that. And so there's a lot of distrust, Mm -hmm. even among the survivor community over the 15 years, because they might have been on staff with somebody else who was the golden child at the time, and then Mm -hmm. later became the scapegoat, because that's kind of how that goes. Um, And so there were a couple of situations which were really beautiful, and I was able to connect a couple of survivors that hadn't seen each other in years and say, hey, you guys, I'm not going to share your stories, but you should just do a call with each other. And so that's not been often, but it was like God Mm -hmm. gave us a front row seat to watch some healing take place. And like I never in a million years expected to get an honor like that and such a sacred space of the church healing and restoring because we did that. One question I was eager to ask both of these women was if they would have done anything differently. Here's Lori Harding's answer. Do you, would you have done anything differently with the process? I don't think so. You can think of anything. I'm happy with how it turned out and I hope it was beneficial and helpful for people listening, uh, you know, from everybody I've heard it, it has been. Um, my story is not unlike everybody else's story. You know, you know, you hear these stories too. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, they're, they all have strong similarities yeah, exactly. I had heard, and you know, from our previous chat, I had heard, you know, maybe a quarter of part of your story. And so I sat and listened to myself thinking, oh my goodness, I had no idea how much, even how much was there. I asked Lori Adams Brown the same question. That's really beautiful. Would you have done anything different when you look back about telling your story? like prepared differently or I don't know. You know, you do what you have the knowledge to do at the time. Mm -hmm. Obviously with the knowledge I have now, I would do things differently. (laughs) Um, Yeah. A couple of things. One would be around the whole investigation with Saddleback. Um, People were warning us that it was a sham and we knew it probably was. I had read a church called Tove. But we wanted to give the church the chance to be the church and do the right thing, even if there were red flags all yeah. over it. And it ended exactly like we expected to. And then they sort of got ahead of the story and were able to do certain things. And there were like over 20 stories that came to them that they just buried. And we don't ever, we never got to see them. We don't know what happened to them. We don't know if the elders even saw them. I think that knowing what I know now, I would not have gone first to Saddleback because what happened is several Echo survivors very bravely came and shared their stories and were re-traumatized by another church mm-hmm. and re-injured in their souls yeah. and have more trauma work to do. I mean, we already know many people who've done EMDR therapy for a meeting with Andy Wood or a meeting with Felipe Santos or a meeting with both. Um, we go to a therapist that was re- recommended to us by one of the earliest Echo Church survivors that we had met. Um, who they're under NDAs, but he, they told us, Hey, go to this counselor at a, she's a Christian counselor. And if you just say echo church, she knows she's worked with so many of us over the years. And so mm-hmm. in the aftermath of going public, some people that contacted me as I got to know them, they're like, Oh, by the way, I go to the therapist. I'm like, Oh, me too. So now she can, it's like, Oh, you can let her know that I know you. <laughs> so, um, yeah. 
you know, I think that understanding that spider web that had been built, if I had known all of it in the beginning, I would have approached it strategically very differently. It felt like Mm -hmm. so much smaller and now it's so much bigger and it involves church plants. It involves other stuff, um, a web that's been woven very intentionally. Um, And it's like, you don't have the playbook, but they do. Um, So I would definitely Mm -hmm. approach the Saddleback situation differently. I would also approach my own situation differently right after being fired. Um, There's a statute of limitations that I didn't know. I don't know any legal stuff when all this happened. I just knew what an NDA was because I'd read a church called Tove. So when they put a piece of paper Mm -hmm. in front of us, I was like, is this an NDA? And they said, oh, no. And then my husband said, well, does this mean we can't share our story? And they were like, and Felipe Santos said, well, I mean, we could sue you, but we don't sue. And like all these strange little veiled threats and not so veiled threats were being thrown around. And after me, somebody else got a lawyer involved. And then I just had never done anything like that. I never knew that was a thing. I mean, I grew up mm-hmm. a missionary kid. My husband did too. We had just done ministry and it was like, you just don't do that. But um, I think because of how the laws in the United States are for justice to try to protect people, to try to ch- protect employees from discrimination, from mm-hmm. financial abuse, which was a part of our story as well. And knowing they've gotten away with it for so long, but the statute of limitations on some of the stuff had passed by the time I had done enough healing and understood laws in America, which I have not lived in very long. Um, I would have more, I would have quickly filed with the EEOC Um, because Mm -hmm. I wish somebody had done that before me. And so I would know this is a toxic work environment and there's been abuse here and Mm -hmm. it would be a way to protect others within the legal system, which is a gift to us as believers. So I would have done Mm -hmm. that differently. Absolutely. For sure. Um, not because I have any desire to (laughs) make money off of it or whatever. Although in the, you know, past couple of years have my kids, um, had, We've not starved. We have had food. We did have to live off food stamps for a while uh, and Medi-Cal because we were both unemployed and um, we're trying to work through getting jobs when you couldn't even be in person in some offices and switch yeah. careers. And mm-hmm. I couldn't network with anybody in Echo Church because I was afraid of what they thought or who that, you know, like um, Andy was also um, had gone to Larry Osborne or basically somebody I was mentoring went to Larry Osborne's church um, and to a big conference and met with a man and said, Hey, I go to echo church. And he told her, Oh yeah. Andy told all the pastors here how terrible Lori is and all the terrible things she'd done to him. This part of Lori Adams Brown's story is so familiar. I wanted to pause here and make note of it. First of all, it's not uncommon at all for those who are asking people to sign something that restricts their ability to speak about their experience to downplay what it is. Asking someone if it's an NDA or a non-disparagement agreement will not always give you an answer that will be helpful because they may call it something else. Also, often leaders of organizations will pressure someone into signing a non-disparagement agreement while at the same time internally and externally disparaging that person. This is a serious imbalance of power and integrity. So getting a job afterwards was very hard because of the slander Mm -hmm. going on. Um, and so, you know, trying to recoup the loss that we faced both in our career moving yeah. forward, the financial, um, losing of money before we even spoke out, um, 
for God provided. I mean, we had people bringing mm-hmm. us meals, people sent us DoorDash money, people who believed us, but the, you know, legally and financially, like there were bad things that happened um, that are wrong, that it right, wrong should be made right. And I think if I understood yeah. early enough, I would have reported to the EEOC because I just know when you get away with bad behavior and you have an addiction to power and that kind of thing, you're going to do it again. If they enable you, yeah. you're going to do it again. If your family enables you to do drugs, you're going to keep doing it. You need consequences out of love. So part mm-hmm. of the reason my husband and I speak out is we do have a deep love for Andy Wood and his family and for Felipe Santos and their families. Now we have strong boundaries where we do not have relationship with them because it's not safe for us. But part of the reason we speak out is because they need help. They need consequences. Mm-hmm. So they will stop hurting people because they have to answer for all the injuries they've done to others over many, many, many years. And yeah. um, I would definitely yeah, do that initial first month very differently to report to the EEOC just so that there's a precedent and it's a thing other people can know about. It's not something you think you need to know about in just normal life. Like, oh, I should know about the EEOC just in case sometime I'm working somewhere that is not healthy and I need to. Nobody no thinks that they need to know that. They don't I think they need to know about know what it was. limitations. Yeah. Right. It's just bizarre that. So yeah. it makes sense that people often go, oh, I wish, I wish I had done this, or I wish I had saved this, or I wish I had done this. So if somebody's thinking, I think I might have a story. I think I might want to talk to a journalist. What kind of advice would you have for that person? Yeah. Some of the advice I was given in my uh, village of wise counsel was if you feel like you have good support right now, then, and you feel like, um, this is something no one, no one, you know, is going to go through it perfectly. But if you feel like it's something you can do out of your courage, you've been given, um, and you have support right now, then, you know, we'll be with you, you know? Um, but if you don't feel like you have a support around you, it's really hard to walk through it because no one can predict the fallout. And so, um, yeah, that would be my advice is to make sure you've got some good support around you. And then also to choose a trauma informed journalist, at least for the first one, because that first one is, has been my hardest one. I did go to Bob Smiatana after that and he's also wonderful. Um, but the first one is for me the hardest. And so choose someone who's trauma informed because it's not easy to talk to a journalist. It's re-traumatizing, it's re-triggering and yeah. all those things happened <laughs> in our process. Yeah. I echo that. I can vouch for Bob and for Julie both being very kind very professional, wanting to get to the truth, being on the side of goodness, not really on the side of a person, but on the side of goodness. And I would say, if you're thinking of talking, talk to somebody who has gone on the record. Yeah. You know, have them reach out to you or to me or to somebody else to answer the, those specific questions that you might have about what it's like. Not every story is meant for a journalist, but it doesn't mean you can't tell your story. It doesn't mean it isn't valuable and absolutely important. Yes. Um, There's just, there's different avenues um, that are available to do that. I will say I also had been following some whistleblowers for a while just because, I mean, 
Like I mm-hmm. mentioned, I was in the SBC my whole life until, um, I mean, basically for 45 years. <laughs> so we're yeah. always hearing stories of, about abuse in that SBC. And I think watching, watching especially women whistleblowers um, and how they handled that and how they told their story, um, not necessarily ones who were the survivors themselves, but also people who just observed it and whistle blew. Um, I had seen a few things here and there about how to walk through that with your head held high and to with the strong conviction um, God can give someone for that kind of prophetic mm-hmm. moment. And then also I would say just watching situa- – like I've interviewed Dr. Beth Allison Barr when her um, book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, was releasing that same day, I think it was. And then Dr. Kristen Covez-Dumay who wrote Jesus and John Wayne. And both of them, they get – a tacked on Twitter here and there and they're academics and they're strong women of faith. And I think Mm -hmm. watching them, and I would say also Beth Moore, uh, get attacked for this and that in ways that women do uniquely, everybody does, but there's a special attack and that there's research to show that, right? Women in Congress running for Congress are going to have way more um, attacks of that kind than a man. So like all of it's very scientifically researched and documented. But I think watching those women of faith walk through that, even just like in the Twitter sphere and realizing there's a few tactics here and there that you can do and there's some ways to care for yourself. So I would recommend that as well. If you don't get a chance to meet a whistleblower in person to kind of watch how these women who are wonderful, godly women who care deeply. And um, I remember Danielle Strickland. I also had her on my podcast and she says, whistleblowers whistleblow because they care deeply about the mission. And that's documented Mm -hmm. in some research out there too and in some books. And it's like, these are people who care. So if you're around whistleblowers, you're around people who care so deeply, they were willing to risk their reputation, maybe their career, finances, all kinds of stuff, personal well-being in order to warn people. And my experience of being around whistleblowers, the ones I get to know, are they are just some of the best people, not out for themselves, but really care deeply about others and wanting to protect them. So yeah, whether you get to meet someone in person, just like follow them on Twitter. (laughs) Absolutely. And you know what? That's one of the nice things about social media. Some people don't like social media. I understand, but it makes it easy to find people. It makes it easy to connect with people that you wouldn't have otherwise been able to. And I can echo that too. I had seen that Ruth Nalhatra was in the area and I was like, I want to meet her. And yeah. I, I messaged her and I'm like, someday I'd love to meet up. And she's like, well, I'm here in town. Like, let's get together. And like, we got to have lunch. Wow. With that next day. And I consider her a friend now. And yeah, she, and like, so, you know, you're talking about whistleblowers and I'm like, man, someday Nancy French should write that book. Yeah. She's already a writer. Yeah. She knows what it's like to be a whistleblower. Yeah. She knows so many people. I think she, I think it would be amazing. This would be amazing. Like her to do a whole thing on whistleblowers would be fascinating. Not that she needs to do what I I tell her to do, but hey, can't hurt that. Free time. We can dream, can't (laughs) we? I mean, (laughs) I mean, she lives in my, she lives in this area too. Everybody lives here. I asked Lori Harding what she would say to someone considering sharing their story. I would love for you to speak to the person that's wondering 
about whether this is a good idea for them to reach out to somebody, what advice would you give that person? Well, it's a personal decision. Don't let anybody, you know, pressure you into that. It's only, it's a decision that only you can make. Even your spouse or partner can't make that decision for you. It's very personal. The second thing is, you know, think deeply about the outcome. You know, if you decide to go public, what are the potential consequences of that? Do you have an NDA? Are you able to speak? Um, you know, because my NDA was violated, I that's why I felt able to speak without having legal ramification. Have an NDA, definitely consult with an attorney for sure. I, you know, that would be- yeah, and there's a lot of good attorneys that understand NDAs. And many of them will be able to, will be willing to have even an introductory conversation with you that will cost you nothing. Yeah. yeah. Um, there are several that we know of and you probably provide resources uh, that yeah. will do that for no fee. Um, mm-hmm. That's a wonderful, that's a wonderful thing to be re- either reassured or cautioned, you know, I mean, just depending, every NDA is different. So mm-hmm. definitely have somebody take a look at that before you speak. Um, yeah. And I mean, we're all different, but I, this is something that I have been doing all my life. I, when I was 30, I was in a corporate situation where a woman um, who was reporting to me was sexually harassed by um, a senior male in our company, with our company. Mm -hmm. And I supported her in her, you know, filing a complaint and kind of going through that process. And a few weeks after that was done, um, I was demoted for my position. And so I mm-hmm. ended up resigning, but I know why I was demoted. You know, like, no, you can't do that. <laughs> you can't. Um, and so I've been fighting this battle, I feel like, for so long, but I wouldn't change a thing because it's the right thing to do. I, I'm just saying whatever it is in me, I can't keep quiet. I, I yeah. have to speak. And so that's different for everybody. Yeah, so it felt like a natural step for you. You've been kind of working this muscle of, of saying things that you, you already knew what it was like to say things people didn't like to hear, to speak up about things and injustice. So, but you know, it's interesting because I think that a lot of people that are on this end of that kind of situation are the same, right? I mean, you think about it, why have people incurred this kind of trauma and abuse it's because they weren't willing to keep quiet that would be an interesting i feel like that would be an interesting dissertation project yeah Yeah. well i really appreciate your time on this i i'm really excited about putting together the information from you and from the other lori and then giving a little talking a little bit more about the difference between sharing like on a podcast where you know exactly where it's going and talking for a print article where you often have no idea until it's out in the world for everyone. I mean, and you just don't know how people are going to find you. What I found is um, people were sharing it um, Mm -hmm. like over and over, just like in their circles. And then someone from that circle would share it. And so, you know, complete strangers were reaching out saying so-and-so share, you know, share this podcast or the blog post or, you know, or who's getting courage from your ability because of where you are situated, you having the ability to speak right now? Yeah. You know, there's definitely something to, and we've heard this before, where people that are, 
the people that are left have a very difficult time understanding what happened. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes the person that has been abused will find that they're kind of the lone ranger, right? I mean, everybody's kind of ditched them for whatever reason. And I mean, the truth is most people don't really know what happened or they're just comfortable. They don't want to make a change. They don't want to walk the boat, you know, so there's a lot of different reasons for that. But doing this and speaking out, I think, helps that too, so that people that didn't understand can now fully understand and maybe you know they can think think a little more clearly about their own situations in the fall of 2019 i sat in a chapel at judson university i was on campus for the first restore conference and these words i heard have never left me what is the one smooth stone you've been given what is your gift or ability or resource or your unique access to information or to power or position? What is it that God has given us that we can use to bring light to the darkness? I had never spoken publicly about our experience, but hearing those words had a huge impact on what I did next. I hope you noticed that I mentioned that I am going to share a little more about the process of talking to a journalist myself. I'll be sharing this with all levels of my membership community, and you can sign up at patreon.com slash untangled faith for as little as $2 a month to access this. I hope you learned something helpful as you listen to today's episode. I'm so grateful for these women and their courage. Don't forget that I've linked to both Lori's stories in the show notes, and you can find those show notes in the app where you play this podcast or by going to untangledfaithpodcast.com and clicking on episodes. If you're on social media, I would love to keep this conversation going over on Twitter or Instagram or through the Facebook page. I'm Untangled Faith on Instagram and Facebook, and I'm Faith Untangled on Twitter. Today's episode is also a great one to discuss with a friend, so forward this episode to your best friend. Tell them they need to listen because you want to talk about it. The Untangled Faith podcast is hosted and edited by me, Amy Fritz. This podcast is made possible by the support of my Patreon community. A special thanks to producers Michelle Pionic, Phil and Susan Perdue, Pam Forsyth, and Shelley Taylor. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next week.